0: large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, for they are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, Please
1: keep your Bibles open. Mark chapter 3. I'm going to ask you a really easy question and it may be a little bit of a harder one. Here's the easy one. Does anyone know what that is? John! What is it? It's a statue, correct. Does anyone know its name? Sorry? The Statue of Liberty. Hands up if you know the story behind it. Why it's there. Juan does. Well done. Heather a little. John does. Okay. I didn't. The statue's original name was the Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World. And it was conceived in thought as a gift by a French historian named Edouard de Leboulet. How did I say that well? In 1865, he kind of came up with this idea that there should, should be a statue in the harbour uh, in America because the Civil War had just ended uh, in the United States in 1865. And to honour the United States' new ideals of democracy and freedom for all people, including Afro-American people, um, they wanted to put up this statue. So this statue is a symbol of freedom. And democracy in America. And the idea is that boats come into the harbour and they see the statue standing there and they go, oh, this is a place where everyone is free and everyone is equal. Um, the American Civil War was fought between the northern and southern states of America in a bid to free four million slaves uh, that were in- enslaved in the southern states. Abraham Lincoln was kind of one of the, the great champions uh, for ending slavery in America. Um, Somewhere around three quarters of a million people died in the war. Um, It was horrible. But the northern states were victorious and four million slaves uh, were freed at the end of the war. And this statue was then erected 20 years later as a symbol of that freedom and that democracy. I wonder, would it surprise you If I was to tell you that despite it being a horrible war, but a wonderful cause, the Bible is clear that not one soul in the world is truly free. Would that surprise you? No one's free in the world, the Bible says. But how can that be? Well, let's find out. In our true story from the Bible today, we see that people are seeking to enslave Jesus. Jesus has withdrawn again to the lake and the crowds are following him and they're trying to back him into a corner so they can touch him and get healed or touch him and get a demon cast out of them. They're using him sort of like a healing dispensing machine, really. And they've come from all over the region. They've come from all sorts of places um, across the region uh, to, to see Jesus and to get a piece of Jesus in a sense. But... That's not ultimately what he's on about. He's not ultimately on about healings and exorcisms, although in love and compassion he's willing to do them. Ultimately, he's on about preaching the word. (coughs) So we saw there in verses 13 to 19, he appoints 12 apostles and he sends them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons should they inhibit the preaching. I think that's that's my take on why they're given this authority to drive out demons, just in case demons get in the road and they can cast them out and get on with the preaching. That's all I'm going to say about the first half of the passage. I really want to focus on verses 20 to 35. If you've got questions about the first half of the passage, um, please ask me later. I really feel like the start of the passage is a bit of a summary, and then we've got the calling of the 12, and then we've got this really fascinating and interesting passage about binding Satan. But the first thing we want to see is... The way that people are trying to bind Jesus. There's a sandwich on the screen. Mark loves sandwiches. He loves what has been referred to by kind of commentators and experts as Markin sandwiches. So he'll put kind of two ideas on either side of one big idea. He does it all the time, and he's done it here in these verses, and I wanted to show you his sandwich. It's a tuna sandwich. You can see um, the bread there. So you've got the verses 21 to 22 and verses 30 to 31 are really similar, and you've got this story in between that kind of contrasts what's going on in the bread. The feeling contrasts the bread. I'll just leave the sandwich on the screen for a little while. So people are trying to bind Jesus and you might be surprised who it is that's trying to bind Jesus. But look again at verse, so Jesus is going to a house to teach as he does. But in verse 21, his family find out about this. His family aren't there with him, they're back home, but word of mouth or whatever, um, they see a tweet, I'm not sure. Somehow they find out about this and they go to the house for the reason... Given in verse twenty-one, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of their mind, out of his mind. So they think he's mad, and they go to try to, you know, grab hold of him and say, "Okay, come on, Jesus, time to get back home. Sorry, everyone. They take charge I means kind of physically, sort of, you know, arrest someone. Pretty much that's what take charge um, means. Interestingly, that's what police say, they charge someone. Yeah, interesting. Um, so they go to take charge of him <clears throat> because they think he's crazy. And the teachers of the law agree. Verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub. by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. They think he's demon-possessed. Their parents his family think he's crazy. The teachers of the law, the leaders of the church, think he's demon-possessed. Um, all these people want to shut him up. They want to bind Jesus in a manner of speaking. If you then cast your eyes down to verse 30 in your Bibles, which hopefully you've got open, verse 30, um, it says, he said this because they, the teacher of the law, were saying he has an impure spirit. So Jesus said something in the middle of the sandwich to defend himself. We'll have a look at it in a moment. He doesn't, well, not really to defend himself. He doesn't need defending. He's Jesus, okay? He's a creator of the world. doesn't need defending, but he says what he says, that we'll look at in a moment, to correct them in their error. He's not actually possessed by a demon. That doesn't make sense. He says this to correct them in their error for their own good. And then verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived um, to attempt to take charge of him. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Go and get him, would you? A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So I've got this sandwich, this um, his family and the teachers of the law want to arrest him, stop him, shut him up, get him out of there because of he's crazy, he's possessed by a demon. They're trying to ins- bind him. Um, but look what he says in the middle of the sandwich. Jesus explains to them he's not demon possessed. You can't bind him, you can't shut him up, in fact, despite what they think. And he explains that all people are enslaved. Verse 23, Jesus called them over to him, began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out to Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. So firstly, the accusation that Jesus is possessed by Satan or a demon of Satan is, doesn't make sense. It's illogical, it's nonsensical. Um, Satan would not oppose himself, so he Jesus opposes Satan, so he can't be possessed by Satan because Satan would not present oppose himself. if he did, his kingdom would fall so verse twenty seven in fact no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now this is the critical verse. I'll read it again. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. If you want to break into someone's house and their home and steal their things, well, first you need to overcome them because they'll probably try to defend themselves and their things. So hence, he says, you need to tie up the strong person if you want to plunder their house. It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? But who is the strong man and what is the plunder? Well, the strong man is Satan. Satan's the strong man. And that's super clear from the context. Satan is the one who has power in this world. We've talked about this already recently. Satan has dominion. Satan has some authority over all people. Ephesians 2 says, do you want to look? actually, let's have a look at Ephesians 2. If you've got your Bible open, flick forward to Ephesians 2. We never do this. This is a good thing to do. This is a bit old school, actually, flicking in your Bible. Ephesians 2, chapter 2. Got it? Ephesians 2, 2. I don't know if it's quicker or slower on your phone to flick pages. I don't know. I don't know what you think. Depends if you know where it is, I suppose. So Ephesians two two says this. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's Satan. All people come under Satan's rule in this world. All people are under Satan's. Rule. He works in all people by the power of his spirit. That's humbling and unnerving to know that Satan's at work in us. He rules all people unless they've been rescued by Jesus. Satan rules all people. All people are enslaved to Satan unless they've been rescued by Jesus. We're the plunder. Jesus can rescue anyone he wants. Jesus comes in and he binds Satan and he rescues a people for himself from Satan. We're the plunder. God's people are the plunder in the passage. So either you're enslaved to Satan or you're enslaved to Jesus, a wonderful king. And Jesus is willing to rescue anyone who wants to be rescued. Verse 28, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. First things first, what a wonderful truth. All sins can be forgiven. No matter what it is you've done, no matter what it is you've said, no matter what it is you've thought in your life, it is forgivable. Not everyone believes this, but it's true. I used to work with a lady... Back when I worked in fire protection, she was um, on reception and we'd have some chats sometimes. She was about how old I am now, in her 40s. She had children and I shared the gospel with her and she said, oh, it's too late for me. I've done too many wrong things. I'm putting my kids in a Christian school because it's not too late for them yet, but it's too late for me. That's sad. How horrible. And I did my best to explain to her that She was wrong. It wasn't too late for her. Every sin, every slander, every sin, every sin. You think about some of the worst people. God in his great mercy. Every sin, every slander is forgivable if we repent and ask for forgiveness. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. What does that mean? Well, we talk about blasphemy, like, you know, saying, using Jesus' name in vain. It's not talking about that. I was playing golf one day with Craig McCorkendale, I think missionary, who will be here in a couple of months, and um, another mate from college, Chris. And usually they make groups of four in golf. So they put this other guy randomly with the three of us. Like, talk about the worst day of your life. Put with three Anglican ministers. What a nightmare. So this poor guy who, it became apparent, wasn't a Christian later on, and I'll tell you why, is lumped with us for like four and a half hours. Oh, man. So when he Craig got to work, just being friendly. He's just really friendly, Craig. So he's chatting away to this guy and, um, you know, getting to know him a little bit and whatnot. Anyway, on the fifth hole, this guy tees off, boom, and he hits it sideways straight into a bush and he yells out, oh, Jesus Christ. And Chris, quick as a snap, said, what are you blaming him for? You hit it. (laughs) To which the guy laughed and, you know, he knew who we were and it lightened the whole situation without, but also acknowledged the fact that, He uh, is using a a person's name as a swear word. Um, The passage isn't talking about that, and I I think there's been confusion about this for for many people. And I think there's been fear that maybe you've said or done things in the past, and now you're kind of ruined for all. You know, you're unforgiven. You'll never be forgiven for the rest of your life. But we've got to hold those two sentences together. Every Sin and slander can be forgiven. And then we've got to make sure we look at the context for verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. The context is talking about Satan. We're thinking about Satan and Satan's work and what he does and what he's like. And that's what it's talking about. Um, The one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, that means the one who believes that Jesus is of the devil the one who believes that Jesus is not the ruler and, and rightful king and God, but rather he's from Satan himself, if that's what you believe, then that, that stance is unforgivable. That stance might change and you become forgivable. But if you're going to stay in that stance for your whole life, believing that Jesus is from Satan, which is what the religious leaders believed in the passage, that's, where the, that's what they were thinking. You will never go to Jesus and say, Jesus, please forgive me, if you think he's from Satan. You'll never be forgiven. That's what it's saying. In that sense, you're unforgivable. You'll never repent. You'll never ask Jesus for forgiveness if you think he's from the devil, like the religious leaders do. The religious leaders are in a perilous predicament, and Jesus is trying to warn them such so that they might realise who he truly is and repent Well, if Satan is a great blasphemer and all people are in slavery to him, how do they escape? And the answer is, in his last couple of verses, 33 and 34, Jesus told these mothers and brothers have arrived to take charge of him. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In order to escape, God's, escape Satan's family, we must repent and trust in Jesus, submit ourselves to him, listen to him and do his will. How do you know if you're enslaved to Jesus rather than Satan? Well, you desire to do God's will. If you, in your heart, you know, want to do God's will, you might struggle. <laughs> You might get trapped in sin. You might resist. But if you're heart of hearts you really want to do God's will, that's a sure sign that you're a follower of Jesus. That's a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is at work within you. That's how you know. If every day you get up and you consciously want to live for Jesus, despite your struggles and stumbles, you know you are following him. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again in glory, he bound the strong man. Satan still is at work in the world, but he's kind of, he's limited in his ability. He's bound. And one day when Jesus will return, he'll be defeated once and for all and cast into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. God rescues all who come to him and reach out their hands and ask for forgiveness. And submit themselves to his rule instead of the devil. What does that mean for us today? Well, the scary truth is that Satan is real, and he's at, he is at work in our world, and he is, he is at work. I've got my I lost my card already. It's not my chair. He is at work in our friends and family's lives who don't yet trust in Jesus. He's he's they're captive to him, and that's a reality, and people don't realize it. Because he's blinded them from the, Satan blinds them from the truth and Satan distracts them with all these worldly enticements. We've got so many worldly enticements in Sydney to distract us from what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us about Jesus. All people are captive to Satan unless they repent and submit their lives and their wills over to God as we have his church. And then they are are free from Satan's grasp. There's no greater freedom than to be a slave of Jesus. That sounds funny, doesn't it? There's no greater freedom than to be a slave of Jesus, to be living for him, to know the hope that he provides. He's our creator. He's our maker. He's the one who knows what's best for us. And to be enslaved to him is to be free in your humanity, in how he made you. It's to live as you are meant to live. There's the old analogy of the train. To, to be a enslaved to Satan is to be a, a train rusting in a field of flowers. To be enslaved to Jesus is to be a train on the tracks that's well oiled and it's working for Him and it's happy, free from sin, free from eternal death, reconciled to God. And that's who we are aren't we? We're freed. We live for Jesus. We do his will in so many ways. I preached at Jordan Abbey's wedding yesterday. Um, and in my sermon, I quoted Matthew 25, the, which is the story of the master who has the three servants, and he, he gives one of them five talents or five measures of money, and he gives another one two, and the other one one. And the first two go, and they double their money, and they come back, and they go, we've worked hard, and this is what we've done. And he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. And they're the words we long to hear on Jesus' lips, aren't they? In the end, when we get to him in glory, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter my rest, which I have prepared for you. It's the, it's the words we long to hear. We, all of us, long to take what God has given, blessed us all so richly, and we long to take what he's given us and we long to put it to work, our time and our talents and our treasure. we, we, We all, we put it to work for Jesus as best we possibly can, day in and day out until our life's end. We put it to work for his kingdom and we look forward to that day when we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to say... Not that it means anywhere near as much from me as it's going to mean from him, but I want to say, well done, all of you who labour hard for Jesus, who are seeking to serve him day in, day out, in your lives, in our church certainly, but in all of your life. It's such an encouragement to see people who know the, know God's word, they know God's will, and they're living for him. It's really encouraging. Well done. It's not something you'll hear in our world which is turned against God. It's not something you'll hear in our community which is turned against God. There's no great accolades for followers of Jesus who live faithfully for him. You hear all about sports stars. You don't hear about missionaries who've laboured for... When you a couple, the Tremlets. They spent 40 years in Darwin and the Northern Territory interpreting the Bible into Creole, which is the native language. 40 years they worked at it. Do you reckon that was on Channel 9? No way, man. It's a thankless gig, largely, living for Jesus. It's hard. And there's no thanks in the community, but there's thanks from God and we're told glory from God to us for living for him, if we read his word and do his will. It's, in a sense, mundane. It's day in, it's day out. It's faithfulness. It's reading our Bibles and doing his word. It's nothing the world's going to get excited about, but it's, it's, it's what Jesus wants. It's what makes us his brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters of Christ, is to read his word and do his will to be a slave of Jesus, to have escaped Satan's grasp. Greatest blessing in the world. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you so much for your kindness, Jesus, for your rescue from Satan. Thank you for everyone in our church who lives for you and does your will. Um, Thank you that you've given them the Holy Spirit. You've given them the tools to live for you. And we thank you for their efforts, for their hardships, for their sufferings, for their rejections at the hands of men in the world thank you for this church and all they do for your glory and god we ask that you continue to empower us to live for you in every way in jesus name amen